On behalf of the Polly's Vague Theories podcast team and our guests and everyone involved, I want to acknowledge we are recording on Lutruwita, home of the many mobs of Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Their stories have been transmitted for over 65,000 years and we pay our respects to their elders and their ancestors. I also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening and acknowledge your ongoing connection to land, sea and sky. I also acknowledge that connection is unbroken and that sovereignty was never ceded and the ongoing trauma experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their culture and communities from the aftermath of colonisation. Always was, always will be. That's right, episode one, series two, Polly's Vague Theories. Amazing, so good to be here. This series, we're going to be spending more time with other people. Much as I clearly love the sound of my own voice, I love the sound of others more. And today, to kick us off for this series, we're interviewing my dear friend, author, actor, leadership facilitator, communications educator, and all-round amazing human, Zoe Coyle. Zoe's book, The Dangers of Female Provocation, is the subject of this episode. It's come out recently and the book explores what female rage is. This is something very dear to my heart in relation to trauma and we're going to look at the idea of anger and healthy anger through a gendered lens and through a broader lens. I invite you to sit on down or maybe stand up, thump the table and get ready for Zoe and I in conversation. Zoe Coyle, you know how great a pleasure it is for me to have you back on the podcast, Series 2, Episode 1. You are the lead. (laughs) Deep joy, and it's all mine. And it's deep joy to me that the last episode we recorded in Series 1, we were talking about your first book, which had just come out. And now here we are at Book 2. That time's gone very fast, but I feel like for you it probably feels like it's been a little glacial or just packed with writing. Packed with writing, but also... It didn't just take me one year to write this novel because it takes a long time to get a book published. So as soon as I'd finished the manuscript for book one, I started cracking on with book two. So it actually did take, I guess, two over two years to write. Now, I'm going to attempt a Venn diagram that involves me getting you to talk about your book, but also me crushing that into the middle of the Venn diagram with my obsessive single-minded interest in trauma and parts and all of the things that go with that. So I want you to self-promote as hard as possible while I try and talk over you and make my point heard. How does that sound? I just can't wait to be crushed. <laughs> you crush me first. <laughs> All right, so the fabulous new book, and it really truly is a wonderful story, is called The Dangers of Female Provocation. Now, without spoiling it, give us a pricey. What is this story that you've created and birthed into the world? So it's about a woman named Odessa Oden, and she is in her late 30s and living a very privileged and closeted life in London. And she has a very dear group of sisters, so a tight group of friends. And through various experiences that happen in her life, specifically the death of her father and finding out that her husband is having an affair, she comes from a place of trauma, which we'll talk about some more, I'm sure, and it tips over and all the patriarchal rage that she's felt simmering below the surface in her life 
bursts out and how it comes forth is that she looks at her friends' marriages and she loves her friends' husbands as well, but she feels that they're not loving her buddies as well or as deeply or as kindly as they could. So she uses any means and all means necessary to re-educate those men. So from uh, sleeping with them to extorting them <laughs> to giving them some hardcore advice. I just, I mean, I love this book so much because it really presents to us a side of, of feminine power that I think as a society we seem to be quite uncomfortable with and you know I think you're probably the first person who really I saw and heard talking about female rage and I mean I know that you reference a whole lot of other texts when you do that for me the interesting part of this too is it really intersects with the trauma piece because I'm really interested in what suppression of anger does to us I'd love you to talk a bit more about your perspectives on on the healthy and the unhealthy sides of female rage. Well, you and I have spoken about before, we're both so fascinated in, in this fabrication that some emotions are available to men and some for women and that never the twain shall meet. Uh, who, who created that insane lie? Uh, all emotions should be available for all people. So for me, what I received through society and directly explicitly through my parents was that anger was unacceptable and uh, particularly unacceptable because I'm female. And so then th through and that it was revolting and unhinged and the language around it was all seriously derogatory and seriously gendered. Um, and yet in my brothers, my three elder brothers, it wasn't anger that I remember being villainized for them. It was uh, the emotions that we would classify or have historically been classified as female, uh, like grief and sadness and fear, which would manifest in tears. I mean, I, I heard only last year, I heard um, a father on the edge of a football field saying, you know, yeah, don't kick like a girl. And uh, and then I was reminded of hearing one of my brothers told, you know, you know, when he was crying, when he was very little, oh, you know, you're crying like a girl. So I'm very interested in that idea of what happens when we disenfranchise feelings in ourselves. And so for me, it really took into my mid thirties um, to, to really look at primarily resentment, that I was doing a lot of resentment. I had a fucking PhD in resentment. And when I explored that, it's of course, resentment is unexpressed anger. And I had totally boxed up my anger and I did a spiritual bypass around it too, to sanction everything that I'd been told that if I experienced my anger, I was out of control. I was hysterical. I would be unlovable. I would be cast out. And that is a lie. That is a lie. And when I started to read books like Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister and beautiful Cassandra Speaks by Elizabeth Lesser and then many other books too, when I started to turn and own my anger, uh, and I'd love you to talk about good anger as opposed to healthy anger and unhealthy anger, but when I started to turn towards my anger and name it for what it was, uh, own it, embody it, and I'm not talking about over-identifying with it, not talking about being fueled by it, uh, but I found that the resentment 
evaporated, not all the time because it was such a lifelong pattern. And actually I could feel my rage. It would burn through me. And then I could ask for what I needed in a healthy way. So anger with boundaries and expression is hugely empowering. Tell me what you think about it. I'm so fascinated by that story. And thank you for sharing the early stuff too, because it's all, it's all, tiny us it's all us when we're children when we get this patterning particularly those early non-verbal years so I'll I mean and I use your experience often to reflect on my own anger story because I think like you I grew up in a family where anger was just not allowed you know you didn't express emotion you really had to keep that shit totally stuffed down and I don't think I ever really had anger in a way that I was I remember a couple of very explosive like as in a couple, one or two moments where I clearly couldn't hold that shit in anymore and just went off my head. In one of them, my mother slapped me across the face. And I think in the other one, I had a massive fight with my brother and just kind of just destroyed things around me. But they were when I was adult, an adult. And again, the message was, this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And I mean, I'm not, there's, there was nothing about that slap that in the situation. It was kind of almost comical and TV sitcom style. Shocking though. But I really, I mean, I think it was really working with you a lot. And when we started talking about emotions, that made me kind of go, yeah, I'm that person too. I just, I just passive aggressive myself into a puddle. So it's been an interesting thing to allow the feeling of those emotions. From a theoretical point of view, I've been really fascinated. I've been deeply getting into Gabor Mate's recent work, his book, The Bith of the myth of normal is without doubt um, a really standout piece of medicine meets neurobiology meets therapy. But he said something on a, um, on a course I was doing with him the other day that's really stuck with me, that anger is the first boundary that a baby can set. So a baby and a toddler pre-verbal and that healthy anger, and that's his term for it, healthy anger, is the way that that infant which has no other power is able to articulate its needs with a line in the sand that says no I don't want this and he very much like you he talks a lot about you need to be able to say no to say yes and that was fascinating to me because we absolutely do come from a culture and I think in the in infant stage where anger is sort of denied for both genders that anger is a place where we don't want to make noise. We don't want to be too big. We want to, don't want to disturb people in the supermarket. We don't want to upset our friends. So can you just keep that down? But what that creates in our internal neural narratives is that we need to be small and it is dangerous to express what our needs are. So rather than being able to say, I don't want that, we say, okay, if the big mammals who are raising us are getting angry, what I need now is to please. And certainly we see in women, and I certainly see in my therapy practice, women who are chronic pleasers and then surprise, surprise, women who have chronic illnesses because the suppression of all of that rage turns into toxicity in the body, turns into those ongoing chronic rheumatoid lupus, all of those inflammatory diseases, which by the time they're in a disease pathway, they're a legitimate disease pathway, but they come from this suppression so I'm really interested in this idea and I mean again you know you're a, a very experienced mother having had a selection of children which I chose not to get from the shelf what's your experience been of watching that I mean Gabor talks very much about the the night that a one-year-old goes to bed and then wakes a, a perfectly compliant child that wakes up like a fury in the morning and that's the moment where this this part of them drops in that is the no part what do you think about that <clears throat> I, I I I love 
hearing you talk about all of that. And I can't recommend Gabor's book enough too. I think it's an extraordinary book, um, really incredible. So as a mother, where I go to with this, and I say this with immense humility because uh, I have four children, two girls, two boys. Um, I'm reacting against a lot of what happened in my childhood. I'm moving towards a lot that I read in literature um, that is the best way to parent. But one of the things without a doubt that um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure-footed about is that when I negate or don't meet an emotion in my child, nothing good happens. So, of course, I find it confronting when one of my children is screaming or being rude. But when I engage with what is the emotion underneath and when we as a family have increased our emotional vocabulary, then those hot emotions or those emotions that trigger us or those emotions that are, uh, that are harder to digest, uh, they're processed so much more quickly. And so it's that. So we have your blue chicks wheel of emotion stapled up in my office. And when the children were little, it would literally be going in and, and offering them options of what they were feeling and when they would identify it. So often it would come out as anger when actually it was there was an emotion that sat underneath it so that the anger was a masking emotion or a blunt emotion. And there was a much more complex nuance one or a, or a few of them, a constellation sitting below, like, for example, uh, anger would come out and actually it was frustration and what sat beneath the frustration was an unmet need and what sat, sat underneath that was fear. So when I'm dealing with that and then going into and you taught me this, okay, so you've got that emotion, where are you feeling it in your body or you can't find that emotion, where are you feeling it in your body? So say, for example, with my six-year-old when he was four, he would say, well, it's in my gut, it's down in my gut. And I'd say, what is it like? And he'd say, it's a, it's a contraction and I feel like I, like I want to cry and I feel like I'm sick. And giving him the permission, saying that is okay if you feel all of that. But then as a parent being able to address the fear, so say, okay, my love, you're safe. It's okay that you feel afraid. What is the need that you need to meet? Okay, you're not allowed to eat biscuits before dinner, but you can have one after dinner if you eat your meal. And then let's have a hug. What do you need now? Do you need me to just sit with you? Do you need some time on your own? Uh, so, and, and that actually takes the whole of about a minute or two minutes, where before I would clamp down on top of the emotion, on top of the in inverted commas bad behavior, and just compound it in this small person. So that has been a complete game changer for me as a parent. But also, this is the beautiful thing about my husband likes to say that, you know, being a parent is, is the ultimate workshop in personal development, because what I do for my children, I need to do for myself. So when anger emerges for me, I had to really burn new neural pathways around that because it was very quickly connected to shame for me. And I would do the spiritual bypass of, I'm not, I'm not allowing myself to feel like that. I'm not that person. I don't want to be that person. So what I was saying was I'm going to cut off a whole swathe of myself and put it in a box, but turning and facing my anger and going, okay, Zoe, what's going on? Where does this come from? I almost always now, look, sometimes I can trace it back to I'm hungry and I'm underslept, but sometimes more often I trace it back to a need that I didn't express. And that's, that's fascinating. So instead of blaming everybody else, I can track it back and go, oh, that's when I needed to ask, put a boundary in place and ask for what I needed. 
It's really funny. Gabor does this beautiful thing when he does workshop where he talks about how to shame a baby. And he says that shame is one of the, you know, it's, it's one of the really primary experiences we have. And he, like me, kind of would say that shame is an affective trauma. And the way to shame a baby is to pick it up, is to look at it in the face and then turn away. And when a baby is disconnected, the emotion that it experiences is shame because the shame sits with the trauma of I'm not safe and I'm not enough for you to stay in connection with me. So it, there's, it's so fascinating, this idea of connection. And I love that story you were telling about your youngest or your second youngest because it's that sort of sense that underneath that, and I love the way you work through that sort of layer by layer by layer, underneath that has, was would be a primal experience where for whatever reason that child had experienced a disconnection and that's what is referenced through the body. Now, the other thing that Gabor said, which is so fascinating to me, is that at that age, the emotional patterning of a trauma in a child. And I know people really are kind of, I'm hearing more and more people going, oh, everyone's got trauma, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is whether we call it attachment, adaptation, developmental wounds, whatever it is, that what emotion that is felt by the child is panic. So if you think about what it is to feel panic versus what it is to feel a bit afraid, panic is dial it up to 11. So that child watches the parent who is there linked to survival disconnect and their nervous system, because it's so tiny and it's so newly developed, goes straight to a really white knuckled mortal terror, I'm going to die panic. So when the mother looks away or the father looks away, and that sense that I can't get what I need, I don't have any other nuance. I'm straight to panic. And when that gets lodged in the body, the first thing is, what do I do to adapt to become safe again and for them to engage me? You know, you're a baby. You've got nothing more than your little kind of sucky mouth and your cute face and your chubbiness. You know, you can't, you don't have any skills. There's nothing you can kind of go, here's a bag of gold. Mummy, look at me again. You know, you're literally just there going, ah, ah. So, and it's really, it's interesting. I've seen him, I've seen Bessel van der Kolk and others do this demonstration where they show a child going through these stages of terror just because the mother turns away. Now they both sort of say, this is an experiment we would do these days, but there's some interesting video of how that used to be done, but it absolutely unequivocally proves it. So to me, the interest is that so many of these adult affects and behaviours happened to us when we were zero to three and sometimes happened in utero. I want to go back to Odessa though, because you know we're we, well, I want to get back into this story because one of the things I thought about when I was reading Dangers of Female Provocation was the idea of Odessa being her parts from that internal family systems parts theory, which as you know I love a lot. And that idea that there are no bad parts, so that parts always come from this intention of protecting and saving. And in many ways, you've written Odessa as this incredible protector slash firefighter part that she kind of takes the hurt that's happened to her, turns around, faces other people, so externalizes it and goes, um, actually, I'm just going to fix that over here. Doesn't do the fixing in herself, numbs herself, but looks to them. And then in the way she strategically thinks about working with the husbands, hasn't really got any of that adult broader context to what the catastrophic outcomes might be when you go in and start to physically fix other people's problems and it's so beautifully done it's almost the book is almost a study in parts but I love that because you you can really see the paradox and the polarity inside us where we hold the dual truth that we can be incredible heartfelt loving humans at the same time as we can be immensely destructive 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'm still a little bit stuck back on the idea that a baby could offer um, a bag of gold. I wish that was the case. They just take bags. You're of- a freaking millionaire. Lady. Yeah, they just take bags of gold. I also want to say before we talk about Odessa, you know, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents when we talk about trauma um that 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 the idea is that uh you know attachment parent theory is the only way to solve that so to be ever available to your child i just wanted to do a tiny little footnote here and say i think part of really loving a child and enabling them to uh, grow into functioning adults is is boundary love. So teaching them how they can self-soothe and take care of themselves. But obviously we don't do that when the child is in having, a, having an episode of pain. Um, uh, but for me as a parent, the idea of having a child sleeping on top of me for 17 years makes me want to scream and scream and scream. Uh, right. But in relation- but, You know, I think the thing that always, sorry, but the thing that always Perfect. makes me feel good about parenting, because again, like- in talking about trauma and trauma theory, what we always have to hold in the very forefront of our mind is we all have it and we're all doing the best we can. We can only work with what we know. And, you know, they know that it's been so shown over and over again in research that 50% strong attachment, positive attachment to babies and to children is enough, is enough to have the attachment there. So the idea that poor parents, particularly right now where everyone is working so hard and so stressed, have to be somehow face smashed with their child 24 hours a day to make sure there isn't a moment where they're just feeling shame or unattached. It's like that's unrealistic because resilience also grows in knowing that the parent comes back. So, yeah, if, if any parent is there wishing they could stab me in the face and, you know, give you a bag of gold, just be clear. Um, everyone's doing the best they can. And we are all carrying this carry through stitch legacies of our own experiences we're only doing what we know we can do anyway Odessa because you have written this incredible book so thank you darling thank you for tracking me back so the Odessa what I I I'm I'm also fascinated in how we as human beings uh can justify our behavior and because I, I think very few of us think well I'm making a really bad choice now because we're coming from trauma and, and and as you say, I, I hear people say to you, oh my God, we've all got trauma, we just need to get over it. Yes, but you're my work and you're my interest is not about resolving all trauma. It's bringing some love and awareness to it. So we're not operating from a place of trauma all the time. Um, so with Odessa, I very much wanted to avoid the trope of the mad woman, the the lunatic, the banshee, the harpy. I wanted to explore what happens to a really intelligent, sensitive woman who really loves and loves hard and well. But when trauma comes in and it detonates like a bomb inside her and it's too great for her to hold. So she puts in place a code of behavior that makes her feel like she's going to be able to survive and contribute to those that she loves. So she does things that are fairly unspeakable. So, you know, for example, she manages to justify in her head uh, having sex with one of her best friend's husbands and then blackmailing him, him, him with that knowledge into being a better husband. I mean, it's pretty far out, but certainly exhilarating to write. And then when you add on top of that the petrol of the experience of 
most, if not all women uh, who in the world after the ages of about 10, where we are sexually objectified on the streets repeatedly and, uh, and people feel that they have the right to make a commentary, run a commentary on our bodies. And I mean, the number of times I've been told, you know, cheer up, darling, you know, it's not going to end and give me a smile. And it's, and, you know, for years, I thought that that was all sort of friendly. And actually, the older I've got, the more I've thought, you know, fuck off. I don't owe you anything with my face. This is the face of a woman that's going about her day doing her business. And raising two teenage girls that are regularly grabbed on the bus, that is not an exaggeration. And, and really encouraging- Or a euphemism. Or a euphemism. Regularly encouraging them to feel their anger around that because mostly they go into freeze when that happens. Um, and these are these are children that are growing up in a loved, privileged household where, where we have a very feminist lexicon with a father that does that, that they understand boundaries. But they're so terrified in that moment that the atrophy happens. And then they come home and they they sob. And they sob in my arms and then they can't eat their dinner because, you know, as, as you talk about so brilliantly, what happens to the nervous system in that. So it's still, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a male friend of mine recently. He was like, but really, isn't the playing field level now? I mean, I, I, I'm not saying you held back in any way, Zoe. And I thought, isn't that extraordinary that these blind spots still exist? I also just want to say, I am a white woman, so I just want to acknowledge that for me, dealing with the patriarchy is on one level with our sisters of color and uh, and queerness and trans women, it's a whole lot worse and more prolific. Yeah, it really is. I'm really happy that you've brought up men because I want to talk about the flip side, I suppose, when we talk about female provocation and the story of men in this, and I mean, we always have to do a lot of disclaimering when we navigate this one, you and I are teaching together, because you don't want to alienate a whole swathe of gender. It's such a blunt instrument. But if we think about that earlier stuff we talked about where Gabor was saying that that an infant is silenced in their boundary. Now that sort of, you know, an infant's in a pretty gender-free space at that very early stage. So we could say, using this blunt instruments with all the caveats, that men are, are more able to express anger as a masculine emotion than, than women are. But men are still silenced and men are still made small. And so I'm interested, I'm really thinking a lot and deeply about to toxic masculinity. And I'm doing quite a lot of discussions with men's groups. There's a lot of mental health men's groups and men are clearly suffering. Their suicide rates are through the roof. There is a real disenfranchisement of the understanding of where do we fit but then you kind of stand back in a marginalised, you know, feminist, trans, queer, of colour, whatever place and go, seems like you guys have got it pretty good, actually. So how do you, how did you navigate that in the book? And, you know, there's a lot of things I just packed into that very long sentence without mm. any punctuation. Yeah, I'm interested in like that. What is, what is the suffering for men? Because they're suffering too. Where totally. do we find the middle ground? Totally. And I worry a lot about teen mm. boys and my sons and, and the behavior I'm hearing from my daughters that their, their male friends act out, and these are not bad boys. They're, they're boys that are not being supported and loved and held and talked to. I have concerns around the term toxic masculinity because I feel, and you, you, you framed well, it. I do too. 
But this idea that of what it's in their DNA, absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in that idea of hegemonic masculinity, that there is a hierarchy within certain masculine structures. So the way men behave to other types of men may be queer men or, or, or minority, minority men. So those sorts of structures, because of course, you and I both love men and uh, adore them. And, and some of my best friends are men. I'm married to one. Um, in the novel, I really wanted to avoid the trope because as much as I'm a feminist, I, I do not believe that men bad, women good. That's just, that's a ridiculous binarization. So I, I really worked very hard to um, prevent the novel from being a rant against men because that's not helpful. For there, be, for there to be change, everyone needs to be welcome to the table and all their emotions for everyone needs to be welcome to the table. And men need to relinquish some of their power and women need to step into their power. And that is that is complex. And look, I, I recognize I'm just talking in the male, female, there is also a gradient in between and around those spaces. So it was hard for me because Odessa has such a mouthpiece in this book that I needed to introduce uh, some beautiful men. And there, there is one man in particular in the book who I hope is a very surprising reveal. I'm not going to name him by name, but he is introduced through Odessa's lens and she thinks he is one thing. And through the novel, it evolves that he is not that at all and is indeed a very complicated man who is suffering and who has the power to recognize Odessa even more than she recognizes herself. So that idea of interlocking, the interlockingness of the genders, that we have to teach each other and bring each other to fullness and wholeness. Um, that, uh, you know, it, I really hope I achieved that in the novel. And, and the good thing is, is that my dear male friends that have read the book loved it. But what I'm finding super exciting is that men that don't know, because I would, I, I failed if just women read this novel, men that I don't know have started to write to me and say, yeah, look, my, my and, and it's only been out a couple of days, um, but advanced reader copies have been getting out. Men saying, this is an amazing story. I'm grateful to have read it. Um, I was worried it was going to be one thing and it wasn't. I feel seen in this too. And then the question is, are women really this angry? And I say, I'm not the mouthpiece for all women, but I certainly am for myself. And yeah, yeah, I'm pretty angry, but you don't need to be afraid. My anger is an agent for change and inclusivity and for me writing this book. So there's an example of healthy anger where my anger allowed me to sit alone for hours and weeks and months on end and write a book which was around the conversation around specifically female rage, but including men in that conversation. Yeah, and I really think you have done a beautiful job of titrating that so it feels balanced. I'm, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the toxic masculinity piece too, and I like that I haven't heard that expression, hegemonic masculinity, and I think that's better because it really pains me to think that, you know, I, I'm pained at any time we other an entire group of people, no matter who they are, because if the minute we other, the seeds of genocide are planted, the seeds of you are inhuman to me are planted. So to say, oh man, you know, you have this, this horrific deadliness to your essence. No wonder people are feeling disenfranchised. I read a beautiful article 
the other day where a man was talking about this idea of toxic masculinity and saying, you know, but also it's, I like being masculine. It's not toxic. It's who I am. I'm a dude. Like I like doing dude things and I don't want to be second guessing myself all the time when I express myself. And that's, you know, what he was saying was it was very clearly not in a way of oppressing or crushing. It was just like, I like to be in this body. I like to be in this world and I like to have these interactions. And is that toxic? I don't know anymore. I don't even know myself. And I so I feel that displacement and I think that sits behind so much of the trauma this idea that that I I can't be my authentic self and I don't know what that is and when I don't have a language for it I feel very at sea and then there's I mean we won't go down this rabbit hole in this particular podcast because I'm going to be doing a podcast later in the series and a fantastic man who's one of the founders of Man Up and he's really got some beautiful things to say about this and is much more educated in the space than I am. But I think about it and I'm really glad that's been the experience of your readers because I certainly think, again, when we look at stuff from a parts perspective, no bad parts, no bad genders, the parts of us that are exiled, that are frightened, they bust out and they have behaviors that are desperately looking for attention because they are the blended frozen children that have never been seen you know it's really interesting so I think you talked about it before in terms of you we we, when we do our work is well we don't want people to be working from their place of trauma and their place of trauma is always a frozen child so if I'm inhabiting the body of a an adult but then when I get triggered and I get frightened I start to behave like a seven-year-old that's the place where I am going to be violent and I am going to be beastly and I am going to not have the nuance of what it is to come from a place of self. And I think we see that all the time across all expressions of gender when we are working out of those wounded places or those protected places. So I might be a really frightened little boy whose protectors have grown up to be these big angry men because that's the only way I feel safe. So I just, I love that this discussion can be ongoing and what I always hope is that we are able to have discussions without falling into a fierce my way or the highway right or wrong you know when we can genuinely listen to everyone and hear what's happening for them and hear their wounds and hear the things that they're asking those places they want to be met it's going to be much easier for us all to do that and as you say men can give up privilege we can step into power and we can meet each other in a place of love and compassion which is really what's missing from so much of this discussion if it's just like as you say the binary of men bad women good it's bullshit like it's such bullshit Mm. and you know it's really interesting the research around when you discuss uh men and vulnerability you know the importance of vulnerability obviously through Brene's work that idea of um you know that you can't come into your grounded confidence without vulnerability and yet what men are saying that when they're asked who disallows you to be vulnerable they say they're women so, you know, we are all culpable. And I think that's a very important point. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend recently and she's married to a very gentle, very beautiful man. And she was saying, though, but that, that their sex is all but dried up because she wants his masculinity when, when they fuck. And, and when she expresses that to him, when she's expressed that to him, he said, I, I don't even know where to start with that. I don't know. I, I feel like I've spent my life trying to come into connection with the feminine. And now you're saying, but when I turn up to you as a man, I'm not man enough. I was very moved by that conversation. And I thought, 
poor men. It must be very, very confusing for them. And I tried to put that in the novel as well. Uh, and you look, and you know, for full disclosure, so men behave pretty badly in the book <laughs> because I see in my life some men behaving very badly because they haven't been taught. They're not held accountable. So it was an exploration too of what happens if Odessa sees herself as an avenging warrior and a re-educator and she holds them accountable because she truly thinks that by her doing that um, that they will be better husbands better citizens better people and that her female friends will benefit so I loved exploring those ideas I think it's a really beautiful place for us to finish because my last question to you was really what is the conversation that you want to start with this work and I think you've answered that really beautifully is there final words from you and what would you like readers to experience when they pick up the dangers of female provocation? Well, I'd love them to have fun. I'd love them to have, oh, I've, I've tried to write a wild, compulsive, thrilling book. So I'd love that. Um, but I also would love, I mean, I'm wanting to talk about friendship I'm obviously wanting to talk about patriarchy I'm wanting to throw more than a little petrol on the idea of marriage and monogamy I'm I'm certainly not saying I have the answers but I think the questions and the conversations are really beautiful and exciting and there is this big through line of what it is to be a woman what it is to have your anger silenced what it looks like when a woman stands in accountability and the nature of forgiveness and what can happen when forgiveness to self and forgiveness of others um, is offered. And those are all ideas I find really, really exciting. Well, this conversation for me has been thrilling and exciting. I'm so grateful that you are courageous in the way you write and that you put this incredible work out into the world for all of us to enjoy. Dangers of Female Provocation is out now, published by Ultimo Press. There's a fantastic audible version. Verdon. There's an audible version that Zoe is reading. So if you want her dulcet tones to uh, whisper you to sleep of an evening, um, I absolutely recommend that. Buy it, read it, celebrate it. And Zoe, thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast with us today. Always making time for you is my favorite thing. I love you. Thank you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Oh yes, my friends, another episode wrapped and regulated series two, loving it sick. If you would like me to record an episode on something of interest to you relating to the nervous system, theory, therapy, trauma, popular culture, whatever it is that floats your boat, let's have those boats rise together. Head to the website, pollymcgee.com and click in the top right-hand corner. There it is, an email coming straight to me anonymously saying what you'd like to hear about. Or if you'd like to be interviewed by me or have someone you want me to talk to, all good, you just let me know. Until next episode, stay right at the top of your ladder, loved and connected, seen and known. Thanks for your company. See you next time. Bye.